Hear the word of the Lord, Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and have brought the vessels of his house before you. And your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, a parson. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom kingdom that same night belshazzar the chaldean was slain so darius the mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62 this is the word of the lord let's pray unto you o lord be all praise glory and honor According to your great mercy, may you please pour your spirit upon us that we may hear rightly your word, that it may be spoken in a manner that honors you, that it may be received in a way that encourages and equips us all because your word is powerful and never returns void. May it do its perfect work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Daniel chapter 5 has become one of the points of major conflict in attacking the authority of not just the Word of God, but specifically Daniel. Scholars in the last 150 years have picked up that song to attack the accuracy and credibility of our Bible. And they use the book of Daniel to prove that this is all just made up. There's two main points to the argument. One is, there was no way Daniel in 600 BC could write so specifically about events that have not yet happened. Clearly, this is somebody hundreds of years later who wrote back and are pretending to write from Daniel's perspective because he's just way too accurate in his prophecies. There's no way that he could know that in advance. So we don't even really need to respond to this one because this is just the fool who believes in his heart that there is no God. And we are not surprised to see God write very specifically about events to come beforehand because he's appointed them and anointed them and he holds them in his hand. And uh, that all, that's just the kind that we just can kind of smirk. Yeah, isn't our God amazing that he can reveal so many things beforehand? So that argument doesn't need attention. However, specifically for Daniel chapter 5, they, they press in and say, aha, your Bible is false and full of errors. Does anybody know the 
one of the ways that they use Daniel 5 to attack the authority of Scripture. It's really pretty fascinating, and it has a lot to tell us about the Word of God. There's a king mentioned in Daniel chapter 5, a king of Babylon, King Belshazzar. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there was no historical reference to a king, Belshazzar, in Babylon. We have a lot of pretty accurate archaeological and written records of what happened during the time of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. We know what's going on. We know the kings. We have records both inside and outside of these kingdoms that are talking about what was going on. But when the fall of Babylon is written, because remember, this takes us, this chapter ends with the fall of Babylon. It's done. Scholars have said, had said for a long time, there was no mention of a king Belshazzar. Your Bible's making this up. So at first glance, it seems a little... It's a little uncomfortable. Going, well, the Bible says that there's a king Belshazzar, and you're telling me that there isn't. Um, you know, you're like, ah. So there's something that happens, though, with God's word. And this is very important. And in fact, it came up with conversation with Kit, I believe his name is, the guy next to us, the tie-dye guy at the market. And he was he was wanting to attack the idea of the word of God being brought together by men and all of the all of the issues with it. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But here's one of the great things that they're going to say to attack. They're going to say, your Bible said this. That there were how many people in the Exodus in the wilderness and leaving Egypt, you know, about two, you know, 3,000 years ago or 4,000, you know, whatever kind of attack that they go. And they say, there's no evidence of such a large Exodus. There's no physical evidence of this event ever happening. Okay. So there isn't any physical evidence right now that proves that this event happened. How does that mean it didn't happen? They they want to twist it. And here's what you're going to find in history at every step of the way. The more we learn actual facts and actual evidence, every single truth that's an actual truth and an actual fact will only verify the biblical account. That's happened Every time. And this is the example that we're going to use today with Belshazzar. All right. So that's, let's see what we're saying. Because it's, it's, it's worth knowing, if for no other reason, then it'll be external evidence that builds our confidence and reminds us about how authoritative the word of God is. So that when we encounter something that seems weird to us, or it doesn't seem to make sense with what you've learned in other areas of life, you can immediately be reminded that if the Bible speaks to it, it is the authority of it, and everything else is subjective to it. Everything else is under it. King Nebuchadnezzar took over the throne of Babylon in 605 BC. Very same year, in fact, the Lord raised him up to attack Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Well, he didn't destroy the temple yet. He will in 586. It's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar was raised up for a specific purpose by God. That he raised him up to use him to be the hand of judgment against his people. That's the year he takes Daniel into captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar. If you're into VeggieTales, King Nebi. 
You ever see the video with King Nebi? He's worth looking up. In fact, in that VeggieTale episode, they had to change the original because they had the people working in Babylon saying they were building little chocolate bunnies. And they say, I don't love my mother. I don't love my father. I only love the bunny, the bunny. That was how they worshipped at the statue. They made it a chocolate bunny statue and they were worshipping this and kids were singing that, so they had to change the language. It was that messed up. Anyway, King Nebuchadnezzar, back to the word of God and what, what matters for power. Um, he reigned for 43 years and died in 562. So he reigned for 43 years, but we know that seven of those years were rough for him. Daniel chapter 5 takes place at a very specific day. We know the day that Daniel chapter 5 takes place. It's the 16th day of the month Tishri in the year of 539 BC. That's the day that Babylon fell to what's called the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the Medes and the Persians came together and they were attacking and growing and they defeated Babylon. So you have Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned for 43 years. Then you have a time period of 23 years. And then Babylon Babylon falls. The attack is there's no mention of a king Belshazzar. And yet your Bible speaks of a king Belshazzar. So let me very quickly take you through the secession of kings. And you will see God at work. When Nebuchadnezzar died, his son, Amel Marduk, took the throne. Now, Book of Daniel and these kings have different names and they're referenced many different ways. So this king, Amal Marduk, is the one called Evil Merodach in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. So your Bible mentions the king that takes over after Nebuchadnezzar and he's called Evil Merodach. Amal Marduk, you hear the, you hear the god Marduk, they like to use the names of their gods into the names particularly of their kings. If you're familiar with any of these stories at the end of 2 Kings, he is the one who released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He was a wicked ruler. He only reigned two years. And he was assassinated by a relative named Nergalasser. So this guy is identified in scripture as Nergal Sharezer in Jeremiah 39. So your Bible mentions this guy. Jeremiah 39 mentions this guy. And he's functioning as an officer in the Nebuchadnezzar court. Okay, He lasted four years and then was assassinated. His son, Labishi Marduk. His son was a young child, reigned for nine months. Labishi Marduk was beaten to death. And then one of the conspirators was named Nabonidus. He became king and reigned 17 years. And this is where the historical account says he reigned 17 years until Babylon fell. And then Cyrus, king of Persia, takes over. So until very recently, he was viewed as the king that took everything up until the end of the fall of Babylon. And so historians are like, your Bible is wrong. We're going... I don't know, the Bible talks about Belshazzar, so there's somebody there that's worth 
mentioning. Okay. You have Nebuchadnezzar, Amal Marduk, Nereglasser, Labeshi Marduk, Nabonidus. No mention of Belshazzar. However, we are not surprised to know that in the last 150 years, they began to discover archaeological evidence of a king named Belshazzar in Babylon. So 300 years ago, they're like, there's no King Belshazzar. Your Bible's false. Well, I don't know. Bible says it. I'm going to trust it. And we're not surprised to see that as you develop more archaeological evidence, this king raises to power. And we see that he was there. And in fact, the, the story is a little interesting because Nabonidus was not actually in the line and lineage of Nebuchadnezzar. But he takes over. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a bunch of concubines and wives and all these people around. And so when he takes power, he wants to marry one of the leftover concubines and wives from Nebuchadnezzar so that he can be connected to the line. And he gets an heir from the line of Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar. Also note that in Hebrew, they don't have the word for grandfather. So they go father's father. They use the word father to trace everybody's lineage and so in our book in daniel chapter 5 nebuchadnezzar is called belshazzar's father because that's how they talk about people in your lineage they use the word father again these are little details that when you read through the book of daniel they can be weird for our minds to get around was belshazzar really nebuchadnezzar's dad and this historian says that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his father. It's okay. You, you read the context. You got to figure things out. And so this guy, Nabonidus, is king. He'd married probably one of the concubines of Nebuchadnezzar. Adopts Belshazzar as his son. And then leaves Belshazzar to reign in the capital city of Babylon while he goes and does other things including meeting Cyrus the Persian in the field of battle and losing. And so when Cyrus and the Persian army comes to invade Babylon, who's left behind but the regent, his son, Belshazzar, which would make him second in the kingdom. Do you remember the reward that he's going to give to the magicians who can interpret the writing on the wall. He says, I'm going to make you third in the kingdom. Why would he make Daniel at the end third in the kingdom of Babylon? Because he was second. Because Nabonidus was first. Even if they were co there was kind of a co-regent feel to him, the more evidence suggests. But the point is that the more you learn about the history, the more you see that the biblical story is painted out very clearly. Now, as we get ready to leave this and to jump in to the text, anybody good at math? 605 BC was the year that Nebuchadnezzar took over. 539 BC is the year that Babylon, Babylon fell. Do you know how many years that is? 66. 66 years. Six is the number that shows man's futility. It's about creation. It's your inability to be God. You're not God. You stop at six. 
And if you remember Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's desire when he's building this golden statue clearly means to defy the one and most holy God of the universe. Because he goes, if this statue in my dream is made of gold and is going to end with iron and clay and is going to fall apart, but that golden head is awesome. Not only am I not going to worry about the future because that happens later, I'm just going to build a statue of gold. So there is going to be no decay. And yet in his own life, he gets humbled by God as he becomes a beast. And not only that, in Babylon itself, he gets the erosion that happens when you're pridefully rebellious to God. In this very story, we see what happens to the kingdoms of man when they stand up boldly against the kingdom of God. Look, at, I mean, they, they erode. They get to the point where they're going to beat like a toddler to death in order to take the throne. That's Babylon the Great? It's a cesspool. That's, that's the, this feeling behind it. And so the fools will take specifics out of these stories and try to accuse our God. And I'm, I'll look them right in the face and say, listen to me. I'll tell you 100%. You show me a fact from history and I'll show you how it verifies the story of God. And if there's something that happened in God's word that you can't prove happened or didn't happen just yet, just wait, my friend. Just wait. The more he allows us to know, the more you're going to know God's word stands. And if so happens, I don't know until Jesus returns. If I even care then, I'll know. I probably won't care because I'll be doing, I'll be looking to the new creation instead of the old. But maybe we'll be worshiping God for his works of old too. I don't know. There's an eternal gospel being preached in heaven. So who knows what's going to happen? I either won't care or I'll know the answer. One of the two. And... I mean, but this really is important. How can you trust this word? How can you trust this thing <clears throat> written by goat herders? Or I love it when they say written by a bunch of white men. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> uh, are you familiar with the color of the skin of people? in Iraq and Iran and Israel and the place called the Middle East, right? But it's it's so funny. Or, you know, or they're like, um, uh, you know, they got together and Constantine just picked the books that he wanted to, to put together. And just on this point, let me tell you about our New Testament, right? 27 books in the New Testament. By the mid-2nd century, by 150 AD, 22 of these 27 books were universally recognized by individual churches all over the world as being authoritatively God's word. A hundred years later, by 250, before Constantine is even doing his stuff, the church has recognized the New Testament. He had already had the Old Testament handed down from Israel and within just a couple hundred years after Jesus died and was resurrected, in a time without computers, in a time where things are written on scrolls, in a time where the church is being persecuted, in a time of craziness, people who just have little fragments of this could tell the difference between the word of God and somebody writing about the word of God. 
Why is that? Because the church does not give authority to what's called the canon of scripture, the standard. We did not, the church did not establish the canon. The church recognized the canon. It's God who set it apart. And our job was to recognize what was his word. And he did move within men to do this stuff. But the time Constantine comes together in the 300s, there's already a Bible. They just have to respond to some heretics who want to change it. That's all they're doing. Because it's God's word. Why do I trust this? Because the God who created all things gave this to me to teach us about righteousness and life. And yes, he gave it to me and he gave it to you. It's his gift. It's not secret knowledge. You want to know the same stuff we're preaching here? Take it. Read it for yourself. It's not you have to have eyes to see. It's a revelation from God. It's authoritative, but it's his. But you're going to believe in this art story? Absolutely. Absolutely. And any, actually, there's plenty of – you can have a very scientific – if they're able to have a factual conversation, if they're not so handed over to foolishness, and see the wisdom in how things are written. You can do all that with somebody if they have ears to hear. If they don't, don't speak to a fool. They're just going to keep accusing God because they want to believe he doesn't exist, and they want to use whatever they can to attack you. But for anybody that you know that's a believer that gets hung up on this stuff, I want to be introducing you to there is – Factual evidence that verifies this. Julius Caesar, everybody knows Julius Caesar lives. He's got he's mentioned in like a handful of documents. We have thousands for the Old Testament, hundreds for the New Testament. He's mentioned in like 16. <laughs> right? People don't doubt that Julius Caesar lived and died. We have an incredible word of God. <laughs> And it is powerful. All right. With that said, it is the night of the fall of Babylon. Okay. Nabonidus, the king, was out battling Cyrus the Persian. Who also could be called Darius the Mede. There's a two names would not be weird at all. At the very end, he's called Darius the Mede, but everybody knows that it was Cyrus the Persian who takes over. That's cool. That's good. They have different names of Medo-Persian. We've seen that Daniel has a Babylonian name and a Hebrew name. We see these names mentioned differently. Also, maybe part of the reason for the two different names is the word Darius means Lord. Maybe it's a title, not a name. The Lord of the Medes came and conquered. So again, once again, they're like, well, is it Cyrus or is it Darius? Because if you read in Ezra, Cyrus is the one who's the king of Persia letting them come back. It's okay. The facts verify God's word, or we don't need to have it verified. We just trust God's word if we don't have the facts yet to, to prove it. Okay. Now, Belshazzar. Sitting in Babylon. All right. What's going on outside of Babylon? There's a Persian army. Think about the scene. Nabonidus is gone. He doesn't die, but he loses. He's lost in battle. 
and you have Belshazzar. Now here's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. Anytime you study Daniel chapter 5, from most Bible teachers, they talk about two things. Number one, the historical accuracy of our account and how God's word has been proven true. And number two, they talk about what happens when sin invades a person and a nation and what it looks like because there's such a graphic example of it. And so if anything we talk about today spurs up inside of you wanting to know more about what's happening with Daniel chapter 5, if anybody's a trusted Bible teacher, they talk about a lot of these kinds of things. So um, by all means, follow up and, and study more of this stuff because it's, it's pretty standard and it's so clearly what we're supposed to be learning from this passage. Right, so the first thing we're going to see is what happens with Babylon. Historically accurate description of Babylon. And then we're going to see why Scripture uses Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation once again. All right. So what's happening in Daniel chapter 5 in the beginning, the first four verses? Daniel chapter 5. He's having a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. Let's just... I don't need to, we don't need to add to the word. We can just read it and be amazed. This is a party for a thousand of his nobles. How much food? How much wine? How much excess is going on for a party? They had, the, the parties of Babylon are recorded. Such magnitude. Rome, in the spirit of, you know, these, Rome would have parties. They actually had a vomitorium in Rome. So that you could eat until you got too full, and then you could go to the vomitorium and vomit so that you could go back and eat more food. There was so much good food, you couldn't fit it in your stomach. That is excess. <laughs> the glutton. Oh, oh, I've eaten so much. I mourn. Woe is me. I can't eat another bite. I'm too full. Oh, good. I'll just eat. Some more. That was the pleasure and the gluttony. <laughs> Rome. In Babylon, they have feasts of this kind of excess. But let's see what the word tells us even more. Chapter, verse 2. When he tasted the wine... I think he's doing a little more than tasting the wine. Okay. Scriptures warn us specifically of kings and the tasting of the wine because it'll dull their senses and it'll encourage them to act like a fool rather than a king. So he gave the order to bring the gold, the silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, we're going to read this story through, and we're not going to belabor this point because, frankly, we don't need to let our imaginations go too crazy on this. You understand eunuchs in the kingdom were castrated because they were designed to... Take care of the king's concubines and wives because they were guarding against the sexual activity that would happen. What is Belshazzar doing right now but having a thousand of his nobles and his wives and concubines all together getting drunk in a gross fest 
of debauchery. Okay, this is, to use the phrase, a drunken orgy. It is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and it is gross, and it's done by Belshazzar, and he's grabbing the utensils from God's temple and using them for this drunken orgy. On the list, how could I be more offensive to God? He's like the list of the top thing, top ten things to do to be offensive to God. And he's checking them off. Belshazzar is. And look what they did in verse 4. They drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now think about what we've said in weeks past when we talk about idolatry and worship and you're going to worship something either the creation or the creator and they're specifically using the gold that god spirit filled inspired men to craft for his glory for his worship and those are being used to praise the false gods of gold in the midst of this a hand appears. How big's the hand? What does the hand write? I mean, we know what the we know what Daniel interprets, but it's in and it's in Aramaic when Daniel says it. But when it's written on the wall, nobody knows what it's said. This is amazing. And he's on the back of the hand, you know, this handwriting. Like, where, where is the hand cut off? What did the hand look like? Who knows? What's it write? What is going on? But on the walls inside of this drunken orgy fest, the hand of God writes. Now notice, if he was a good king, he'd be worried about what was going on outside of his walls. He's hiding behind the walls of Babylon. And let me tell you, the walls of Babylon, they're said that they could do four chariots wide race around the top of the walls of Babylon. This is massive. They are hiding behind the safety and the security of the walls. Belshazzar is there. He's got the Euphrates River flowing into his city. He's got enough food to have a drunken orgy fest. Go ahead and let the Persians hang out outside. We're just going to get handed over inside of this place. He should be afraid of what's happening outside of his walls. And the hand of God, much like it did to Nebuchadnezzar, correct? Nebuchadnezzar's own bedchamber was invaded by God. He could not sleep. Here, in the midst of this fest, this hand is written, writing, and look what it does to the king. They, they do so much extra detail in this story. It's, it's amazing. It doesn't say, and the king was terrified. No, no, no. His face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. His knees began knocking together. He is being humbled by the Lord. And he's calling aloud. You know, you know these same conjurers and magicians that have been useless every time they're mentioned in the stories? He calls back to them. Any man who can give me this interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold and shall be third ruler in my kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in and they couldn't read the inscription. And then King Belshazzar 
was even more greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler. (laughs) He was already sick. He's like, now none of my people can answer. And he's just getting broken. And his nobles were perplexed. Enter the queen. Probably referencing her as the queen means that she's the queen mother. Maybe his mother, maybe Nabonidus' wife, one of his wife, that category of person. We don't know the exact detail, but it doesn't seem like it's one of his wives and concubines because they're out there participating in this drunken orgy. And she enters in, and I love how she speaks. She comes in and says, O king, live forever. Do not, do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. Verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is... Now, the translation here is a little weird. All right? I'm going to take another quick little rabbit trail. The Hebrew word for God in <clears throat> referencing capital G God in our Old Testament is the word Elohim. And the I am in English is a plural ending. Elohim is a plural word. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It is a plural word used for both emphasis of the magnitude of the God that we're speaking of. And I believe teaching us that there's a plurality to the one true God. That's why Satan and the false gods try to correct this pantheon of all these false mini-gods to try to confuse the picture of the triune God that we just sung about this morning. So I don't know if she uses the language in whom is a spirit of, a spirit of the holy gods, plural, is the spirit of the holy gods, or if she said, is a spirit of the holy god, of God. And I'm, I'm a little suspicious that she's recognizing who Yahweh is and who the true Elohim is because she calls Daniel, Daniel, not Belteshazzar. She does not use his Babylonian name. She says, yeah, you might know him by his Babylonian name, she says, but I'm speaking to you of Daniel in whom is the spirit of a holy God's. What, what exactly she's meaning by this? We know, scripture tells us, that it's talking about the most high God. So she's laying it out there for the king. And says, your father Nebuchadnezzar, Remember, they don't have the name for grandfather and they use father to trace down genealogies and they can skip it. Very common practice of the day. Verse 12, this is what she says about him. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. I just love that she calls him Daniel. Let this Hebrew slave of Yahweh be summoned. Now, I don't know the condition of her faith, but she seems to have a little more going on than everybody else in the courts right now. That's all we know about her. That's all we need to say.
So Daniel's brought forward. And then here's the king. Are you that Daniel who's one of the exiles? Verse 14. Now I've heard about you and that a spirit of the gods is in you. Now he's clearly referring to a spirit of the gods. Belshazzar has no has no honor for the one true God of the universe. And that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. And then he goes on and he continues to say, I've got this reward. Interpret this for me. You'll get purple. You'll get a gold chain. I'll make you third in my kingdom. And this (laughs) is one of the better lines in all of the Bible. And so especially in Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourselves or give your rewards to someone else. Get that trash away from me. I'm not even going to touch what you have defiled. However, I will interpret it for you. And I'll read the inscriptions and give it to you. And then he goes in and gives a speech that summarizes what we've looked at in the last couple chapters, and specifically the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he talks about, O King, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Remember, when someone is given sovereignty, sovereignty can be taken away from them, and even in their sovereignty, They're subjected to the one who's greater than them. So King Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the sovereign over the whole world. And as he was speaking blasphemies out of his mouth, God humbled him and took sovereignty away from him. And then it was restored to him after seven years. And he praised the Most High God. So so he's reminding Belshazzar of these things. How much Belshazzar knew of the story? It sounds like, yeah, there's a time where... Oh, Papa Nebi was eating grass in the fields. That was a little weird. You know, like I'm sure he's heard about that stuff, but it sounds like his memory is clouded maybe by the wine, maybe by sin, maybe just because he's an immature glutton. Who knows what's going on? So Daniel makes sure he understands the story. And then as he's working through the story, emphasizing the sovereignty of God, he gets to the passage that we read today. And then he says this. You have exalted yourself. Oh, no, sorry, verse uh, 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. What does the fool know? What do we, what do we know from Romans chapter 1? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him Thanks. Earlier in that, it says it is that God exists is evident to them. It's evident within them because God made it evident to them. God made his self known to Belshazzar and Daniel inspired by Yahweh is speaking to Belshazzar and says, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You've exalted yourself 
against the Lord of heaven, and have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, and have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but the God whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Okay, let's nail this to make it clear. Verse 23, he exalts himself. In verses 22 and 23, leading in, but you have exalted yourself. You've blasphemed God. You've taken for yourself what is his and his alone. You had no right to these golden cups and these temple tools and utensils. They're not yours. They're his. And you've exalted yourself. Number one. Number two, you worshiped idols. They can't see, they can't hear. You're worshiping the gold created and not the God who created it. Not the creator. And verse three, I'm sorry, verse 23 at the end. Your very breath is in the hands of God. Yet you have not honored him. Not just your life, not just your sovereignty, not just your reign. The fact that you could take a breath today is in the hand of God. And that hand has written you something on the wall. And in your little drunken orgy fest, you can't even, you can't even begin to imagine what's on there. Just the thought of what this hand could be judging you for is making you weak in the knees. And here it is, many, many, tekel, huparsin. I do think it's interesting. These are Aramaic words that nobody else could read or understand. But when you're reading this story as it's going around the nations, you can read it in your own language and you know what these words mean. Mene means numbered. So the word would say numbered. The inspiration, the interpretation is numbered. The God who numbers all people and kingdoms says your numbers up. The God who declares the end from the beginning has numbered your kingdom, has numbered you. Mene, mene. Tekel means to be weighed deficient, to be weighed too light. You have been weighed on the scale and God establishes the standard and you are too light. You are not enough. Your days are numbered. You are not enough. And it says Perez in the interpretation, which is the singular. The plural is the word huparsin. So the singular means divided. And your kingdom will be divided against the Medes and the Persians. Numbered are your days. You've been weighed and found deficient and your kingdom will be divided. Now, rather than humbling himself, which he could, right? What if he would have fallen to his knees and humbled himself and confessed and praised the Lord of the universe? But no, his result is he still clothes Daniel in these things. You can see Daniel just kind of standing there. 
gold robe. I mean, the purple robe, the gold chains. Third ruler of my kingdom. Thank you. Yeah, Daniel's like, have you looked outside the walls lately, my friend? I don't want to be associated with your kingdom at all. Like, you're done. Right? So, out there, the Persians have dammed up the Euphrates River and sent people to crawl under the walls. So he's in here having this party, having the handwriting on the wall, humbling them, saying, your days are numbered, your kingdom will be divided. And those people outside your walls are going to get it. And he's still in there when he gets done thinking that he's going to give third power in the kingdom to this guy while there's literally now Persians flooding into the city. And he does. Drunk. Drunk. Let's interpret this with scripture, shall we? Ezekiel 18.20. The soul that sins shall die. Not just the soul that sins, but Psalm 9.17. Sheol is the end of every nation that forgets God. Specifically, Belshazzar knew that there was a God of the universe. And he forgot, intentionally forgets to think of Second Peter, the way that we can intentionally forget the God of the universe. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace. But sin in the moment is pleasurable. In the middle of his drunken orgy fest, he feels like he's king of the world. In his boastful rebellion against God. But the end of that nation that forgets God is the grave. It will be a byword, to use the language from the psalm that we read this morning. Okay. Let's just call out the sins that we see in Babylon and get ready to recognize them. Okay. What does Belshazzar do? Number one, the first thing he does, even before his party. So we don't hear about it until later. We're introduced to the party. But when he's called out by Daniel, he said, even though you knew this, you did not humble yourself. He intentionally forgot God. That's what the mockers do in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, these people are like, where's Jesus Jesus is like the gods of old that Elijah called out. Maybe he's forgotten you and he doesn't care. Maybe he's too weak to return. He says he's going to come back to judge. It's been so long. It's been 30 years. 30 years, Jesus hasn't returned. Or 25 years, you know. Do whatever you want. There's no consequence. Second Peter calls these people mockers and it says that they forget that by the word of God, he created all things. By the word of God, he destroyed the earth with the flood and gave it a rainbow as a promise to never destroy the earth again. But we know that when he comes back, it's going to be with fire instead of water. That's what the mockers intentionally forget. So Belshazzar is pretending that there's no consequence for his sin. He's forgotten God. And what does that lead him to? It leads him to pride. Leads him to be prideful, to look at what he's accomplished in his hands. Look at what we can do. Look at how great mankind is. Think of the Tower of Babel. 
It's an illusion that you don't need God. We don't need God to do science. You actually need God to tell you that it's wrong to kill. You need God to tell you that it's bad to steal. What kind of terrible person? This, we are accused of this on the streets by mockers. They'll come up us to us and say, you need the Bible to tell you what morality is? You can't tell right and wrong on your own. You need the Bible to tell you that? They will mock us. They are mockers mocking us. Intentionally forgetting God and claiming you don't need him to do what's right. And then this leads to idolatry, greed, materialism. We talked about secular humanism, the idea that we can do what we want to do. Trust the state. Don't worry. Don't worry about death. We'll find a cure for it. You worry that you can't have your happy life that you're promised that you deserve? We have the cure for what ails you. Now you see the justification in a lot of people's minds for something like abortion. Does this baby get in the way of your plans and your happiness and your success? That's not fair. It's not fair for this baby to get in the way of that, to to be be an unloved problem in your life. You don't need God to establish these things for you. It's prideful. It's materialism. And as we're laying this foundation, can we say that the drunken nation is a nation that is just looking for reasons and excuses and justifications to act like it? You could... Do you understand the things that you can do as a drunk that if you were sober, you'd be cast out of society for? But as soon as, oh, that that drunken fool at the party, and then the person has a hangover on Monday, and everybody's kind of joking about it and moving on. That person was sober, and he went up and he touched a woman he shouldn't have touched or kissed a woman that he shouldn't have kissed. You know, you were out of control and you were drunk. I know, man, that was crazy. You come up in the office and you kiss that person, they'll slap you and... But when you're drunk, our society wants to excuse your childish, foolish behavior. And drunkenness is especially important because they use drunkenness to talk about the entire intoxication of sin. Right? This gluttonous party of Belshazzar, pretending that the world is fine, dealing with the stress of the world by just being a drunken debaucherous, wicked man. Rome would call it bread and circus. You can do anything you want to people. Just give them enough bread so that they're not going to starve and give them enough entertainment so that they can have a little bit of pleasure with their day. And then they will worship your gods. All right? Drunk with pleasure and entertainment. Bring out the wives, bring out the wine, get the concubines, get the food. Let's party. Let's celebrate this. What is sin doing to America today? Everybody's talking about the great slap heard around the world, if you do anything on social media. Chris Rock, a comedian, doing the Oscars, walks over, makes a joke about Will Smith's wife. And having short hair, calls her G.I. Jane. Actually, could probably say a lot worse things about her and just mentions that. Even Will Smith thinks it's funny at first. And oh, by the way, this is the same woman that 
woman on TV and says that she has an open marriage and sleeps with other guys and is seen pictured with other guys. And Will Smith is just kind of sitting there pretending like he's okay with it. So all this scene, and then Will Smith gets up, walks over, slaps Chris Rock in the face, goes back down, and then cusses at him. So everybody's talking about the slap. Was it real? Was it staged? What was going on? Um, How about this? When people in our culture are talking about Will Smith and his wife, nobody's condemning her and him for having an open marriage. Then he gets up later, and this is why I mention it. I don't care about the slap. This is why I mention it, though. He stands up there and says that he seeks to live for God. He calls upon the name of God and says that he is a follower of God. He doesn't use the word Jesus. He used the word God. It's an idol. Michelle Williams, years ago, after winning an Oscar for her role in The Greatest Showman, stood up there and praised Moloch and thanked him. For her success. She said, if I wouldn't have been able to kill my baby, she said, if I, the real language she uses, if I wouldn't have had access to an abortion when I was younger and single, I would not have the success that I have today. So thank you for the choice to choose. She's given a golden idol and she's celebrated in our culture. Where would I be if you all didn't fight so that I had the right to sacrifice my baby to Moloch to have the success that I have today. You listen to songs and preachers and teachers that are aware of God and honoring him in the 80s and 90s, and they say pornography flooded the streets in the 90s of America. In the 90s of America. 2010-ish is when the iPhone started. Right? So this is like 15 years before you even have like a smartphone with pornography in your pocket. In America. Because we could paint this picture of what Belshazzar is doing and even non-Christians would go, oh, that's a little, that's a little much. Right? That's a little intense. Good thing we're much more civilized now. Right? It's a good thing. Thanks to our iPhone. (laughs) Look what we've created. Look what we've done. A kid could come with holes in his shoes and wearing the same clothes for three days and he pulls out a smartphone when he's sitting in class. Okay? That appetite for sin... The vision of the vomitorium in Rome. That wasn't Babylon, that was Rome. But it's the same kind of thing. Just eating, just for the pleasure of eating. And eating until you can't eat anymore. You're consuming. Never satisfied. Always looking to consume more. Like John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. I was looking for opportunities to sin more. Go ahead and think of a sin I haven't done. Challenge me to sin. How much can I satisfy this gross, wicked appetite that I have? Long before pride, my friends, long before pride, we hated marriage in America. Long before pride, 
we were teaching men not to be men and women not to be women and God not to be honored. Because Romans tells us that pride is the response of God to a wicked nation. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 1969 was the Stonewall riots in America. 1969. Interesting, there's other things that the 60s are known for in America. And it just so happens to be the LGBTQ civil rights homosexual moment is the end of the 60s. Almost like God said, fine. This is what you want? Go right ahead. How about blasphemy? How about blasphemy? How about using God's name in vain? Much deeper than just a a reference to the Christian God. How about the false Christ that we create even in American evangelical culture? And you're going to get tired of hearing me say this. I'm telling you right now, the chosen's God is a false God. He's blasphemous. And because I made the mistake of looking at a couple videos on social media, they advertise for it all of the time. I get clips and advertisements for this wicked thing all the time and testimonies from believers about it and all the people tells me all the people who have liked it and all the things that are going on and it's blasphemous it's not it is not Christ right so we've created a false Christ the lord's name in vain the one word you can say in a pg movie is the name is the lord's name in vain right for kids how about the vain prayers in politics how about going to the city council and hearing wicked Haters of God pray in Jesus' name even. They even use the name of Jesus at the end of the prayer sometimes. Not anymore. I think they've shifted it. I know some of them wouldn't even do that. But there were people who would stand up and pray in Jesus' name. Or our current Congress prayed in the name of the most holy one creator, Hindu, Vishnu, a man and a woman prayer. I can't even remember the gibberish because I don't really care to memorize it. That's factual right blasphemous prosperity charlatans you are gods god wants you to be rich god wants you to be wealthy you just have to believe it you get to speak into existence because you're made in the image of god and he spoke into existence so you name it it's yours speak it own it he wants you to be healed it's his will that everybody's healed claim it it's blasphemous. It's blasphemous. It's wicked. And then what we finally see here is the picture of the guilt and the wages of sin stored up wrath. You're storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment. It's Sodom and Gomorrah poured out on Babylon. It's Sodom and Gomorrah poured out on Assyria before them. It's Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment of God. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord prayed to the Lord in heaven, rain down fire on Rome. Rain down fire on whatever nation has risen itself up and forgotten God, the nation that's been given so much. When is Jesus going to pray to the Father to rain fire down on America? You're going to tell me the Father isn't going to respond to that prayer? You know when you have like a 
the water like over the top of a bowl or a cup and it's so full you see it like kind of hovering over the top and you put one more drop in and boop and it boop, bubbled up but it still stayed one more drop and then finally you know you're like when is this cup going to be so full Right now, the kind of judgment we're seeing right now is just like little drops kind of spilling over the edge of this cup. Just boop, boop, boop. As we wrap this up, I'll read to you a few verses of Revelation of this Babylon. of what we're told about her. And just listen. Starting at 14.8. Let's read four of the ones that are mentioned. 14.8. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Think of that drunken festival. Think of America. 16, 19. The great city was split into three parts and the city and the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. God forgets your sins, saints. He does not remember your sins anymore. For if God were to remember your sins, you would be an individual representation of the wrath that Babylon gets. Revelation 17.4 The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of the abominations and of the unclean things of immorality, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And then 1821. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great, the city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Since the nations who rebel against God will have this for their end, and since the whole earth will be consumed in the fiery judgments of God. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which the righteous in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. God, we thank you so much that you are the sovereign king, that you rule over all things. 
and that you have patiently, patiently interacted with hum- humanity that's rebellious. And in the, until the day that you come back or the day that we see you face to face, Father, may you use us to advance your kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.